Live from Columbus, it's the Zone of Truth. This week on the show, to celebrate the conclusion of our off-pod Runelord saga run, Griff and I welcome on our buddy and GM Tim to talk about the campaign, deep dive into serpentine creature the Lamia, and of course, answer some listener questions. We'll try and keep the discussion spoiler light for folks currently running or playing in Runelord-based adventures of their own. That's going to be difficult, so of course, listen at your own discretion. I'm your host, Steve, in the studio with your GM and my host, Griffin. Roll a will save. You're in the zone of truth. And we're back. Yeah, we're back. Oh, well, is, what we didn't tell the exciting. live listeners is that we definitely do that little dance when we're just by ourselves, too. That is true. <laughs> yes. If it does not matter who is watching, it does not matter how many people are in the studio. Uh, if it's just Griffin and myself, we, we dance. Yeah, we're dancing. Sometimes. Without, without the music, too. Yeah, definitely without the music. Yeah. We don't even play the music live. No, we don't. But... It's more fun when you do it, I think. Okay. It, it happens every time we're not live. You do mm-hmm. you do your little <laughs> you, you, you do it every time. Because like I want to give it enough space so that we could easily drop the thing in. So I have to like sing the theme song in my head to know about the right amount of time. It, oh. it, it's like on the regular episodes when you mimic me. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's another thing people don't know is the, hey, everybody, and welcome back to the HO or the Hideous Laughter podcast episode. But, and I will mime along with you that. Just like mouth mouth words, what I'm, it's, and then I try and count on my fingers how many episodes. Yeah. Sometimes it takes a while before Steve's yeah. done counting. It's true. <laughs> it's about the first half of the episode, <laughs> counting on my fingers. Anyway, so excited to be live again in the month of October. Halloween's right around the corner. We just wrapped up a big campaign yesterday. We're super excited, and I'm going to be celebrating with a beer here, so I'm just going to say what it is, and I have memorized the can. This is a crossover between Pipeworks and a confectionery or bakery called Bang Bang, like that, and in fact, Pipeworks is spelled on this can with an E after the I because it's a key lime pie beer. Pretty excited. Wow, you guys are wow, really pumped yeah, I'm really, really excited for you to get into that. Yeah. Can't, can't wait, can't wait for you to it. taste it. Yeah, me too. Well, they did it. Hey, can I try a sip of that? Bang, bang is what I say. Yeah. I've heard that that bakery is f- famous among foodies in Chicago, yeah. at least. But I mean, Speaking of bang bang, absolutely bang and a bang. Whoa, two bang mixes to drink. Wow, how about that? That's awesome. Yeah, I'm having the uh, purple kittles mm. flavor, and then I'll roll into a strawberry blast. Sounds good to me. We're, we're gonna go ahead right away and introduce our guest. He's been, geez, he's been on Linked Legacy. He's been on Pavlos and Pals. He's been in our live studio audience for certain episodes. Uh, oh yeah, you know him really well. He shows up in basically everything we do. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thanks, thanks for having me back. Can't Hell believe yeah. it. It's uh, it, it's not very often I get invited back. You know, multiple times. Usually three is like where they say no. Third time's not the charm for you. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. this well, is not working out. 
it it is working out and we're glad you are back we're glad to have you you're still all pumped up from last night aren't you i am pumped up i mean by pumped up i mean i'm i'm hung over from last night <laughs> yeah same. <laughs> uh it was a long night it was an intense combat i was super nervous before because it was our final combat for return of the room lords and i think i just drank way too much and, and so i'm having water today that's uh that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, I'm, I'm more of a hair of the dog <laughs> that bit me kind of guy. Yeah, <laughs> likewise as yeah. well. Before we get into some of the meat of the episode, let's just go around and and you know tell these listeners you know what what we've been up to Maybe, this past couple weeks. Oh, yeah. Maybe get a little music too. Ooh, that would be cool. Griffin, what you been up to? Speaking of finishing things, mm-hmm. this morning finished Hunter Hunter, which uh, I've been talking about on this show for like mm-hmm. two months now. We've been which watching one, it for that long. Which one was more satisfying? The conclusion of this three-year-long <laughs> uh, Return of the Rune Lord campaign or Hunter x Hunter? It, it, it's tough. It's <laughs> tough, I'll tell you. No, uh, obviously the campaign. Mm-hmm. But I finished that up. Still been watching uh, What We Do in the Shadows. Still been enjoying that a ton. But uh, Haley and I actually both picked up Diablo 2. I know I had talked about wanting mm-hmm. to play it. And it's such a great nostalgia hit playing that game because they've refreshed all the visuals made it actually playable on consoles so her and i are playing it on switch but i have it on ps5 as well and it's just the the graphics are updated but it's the same old diablo 2 and it's really fun and Haley and i were sitting on the couch and i was uh, doing my best Deckard Kane voice at her (laughs) (laughs) for, for like two hours as we were playing so it was great uh, and I, I had missed, I didn't realize how much I missed that game because I think I played it, geez, for like the longest time I played it when I was like nine or ten. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that old nostalgia hit. It's something from your past gets remade. And I've heard, I know you've been raving about it. I've had a couple of friends at work who've been raving about Diablo 2. People tell me I need to play it. I've never played a Diablo game, but maybe I'll give it a shot. Who knows? Looks fun. It's really fun. It's, it's one of my favorites too. Yeah. And Diablo 3, I really enjoyed that when it came out. I really like Diablo 3 as well, but 2 has like a special place. It's more nostalgic. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to jump into kind of some of the stuff that I've been doing the past couple weeks. I got a little bit of everything for the folks today. So I started and now I'm halfway through season two of this show that is on Netflix called Slasher. And I've told a bunch of people about this show, but no one has ever heard of it. I don't nope. know why. Mm-mm because it's really good. It is an anthology show, so each season is its own story, and each season is basically just a season of, like, if you had taken, like, a slasher movie and blew it out to a full season of television. That's pretty cool. It's great. Both seasons I've seen so far have had, like, real whodunit effects, so, like, people will get knocked off one after the other, and I'm constantly finding myself trying to figure out who was in what room at what point and that kind of stuff. It's really fantastic. I really highly encourage people that if they like horror movies or horror television or whatever, to give it a shot. Like, I'm I'm flying through it like candy. It's really good. You don't eat candy. That's a good point. I don't. You can't use that saying. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, that's for All folks right. that eat candy. Flying through it like hot dogs. <laughs> flying through it like yeah. a man through hot dog water. I'm flying through it like, like hot dogs. <laughs> uh, you know what? There's a... There's something else that I put down like a foot-long Frank. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's the Star Wars High Republic audiobook Tempest Runner. Oh. 
I will say that if anybody out there is interested in Star Wars The High Republic, the audio versions of all of their books have been uploaded to Podcast Addict. So you can just download them. Oh, somebody put them on Podcast Addict. <laughs> yeah. What? That's yeah. interesting. Oh. And so I've read all of the books, but they came out with an audio, like an audio exclusive book called Tempest Runner, which I was like, oh, I should probably check this out eventually. And then I just randomly searched for it on Podcast Addict, which is how I found out about this. And it was fantastic. If you like the High Republic series, I think it's one of the highlights of it. And if you are interested, go back and listen to the other stuff because I guess maybe for a short period of time before Disney takes it down, it's out there. Is the audio exclusive, like there is no physical book of it? Right. So is it as long as like a normal audio book? No, it was, I think like maybe seven or eight hours. It's pretty quick. You can blow through it fast. Yeah, that's fair. Usually an audio, I mean... I have some audiobooks that are around that length. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they can be. The um, The library does a lot of the Star Wars books on audiobook uh, sure. around here. So I was I was doing actually the first High Republic book mm-hmm. that you recommended. And to, to listen to the book with the sound effects, like while things are happening, yeah. they would do like modulation for the droid voices and like explosions when there's something that happens. Like it's really... So they're like really high cool. production quality. The production really, quality yeah. is crazy. Like the voice actors are very good. You have the like actual official Star Wars music. So like oh, yeah. if a space combat is going on, oh, you'll hear like dual of the fates and stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. You got to get up and fast. <laughs> or like if somebody is like wearing a rebreather mask, like their voice sounds like crackly and distorted. That's it's true. really really well done. And if people are into it, I'd suggest checking it out. I got a couple quick plugs for some music I've been listening to. I'm not going to dive into any of this. Just by now, if you've listened to 71 episodes of The Zone of Truth, you know what kind of music I like. And if you like that kind of music, check out the album Wrong Generation by Fever 333 and the brand new album from Par Stacy called Party in the Cemetery. Those are the two records I've been listening to on repeat for the last two or three weeks, and they are fantastic. They're oh, you guys so- were playing that last night. Yeah, it's a banger. Tim, what's been up in your life, man? Yeah, it's been uh, it's been busy. I'm just uh, trying to graduate here at food science, and so there's not been a ton of time. But I have really been getting into Age of Empires three again, which is really nostalgic for me. I, I'm one of the weirdos where like most people like Age of Empires two. I grew up on one, and then really enjoyed three as like mm. a teenager. It's a real time strategy game, if you don't know, and one of my favorite genres. I grew up on 2 and loved it, and then when 3 came out, I was really excited for it, and my computer could not handle it graphically, oh, no. so I just <laughs> so then I just never came back around to playing it, so I just only ever played 2, because that's all my computer could handle. It still performs, like, kind of poorly, like, there's, like, ship combats. It was the naval combat, ocean. yeah. 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 And, like, the ships are breaking apart, and it's just usually very glitchy, but, okay. um, yeah. <laughs> so maybe it wasn't just my computer. It's not just your computer, it's very fair. But then they, so Age of Empires 4 just had like a stress test. Um, and so that's what got me turned on to it is that they're doing an Age of Empires 4 that's going to be coming out in like a couple months or something. Okay. Uh, so that's what I'm into right now. Really excited for it. Nice. It rocks, man. I'm glad to hear it. All right. Anything else from the panel before we hop into today's discussions? Let's get some of my favorite mods. Let's do, do it. it. All right. So our listening audience of patrons has voted, and this week we are doing a My Favorite Monster segment. 
because we were having Tim on, I asked him what he would like to do with the caveat that it was like, hey, man, since we're talking about the Rune Lord saga, let's do something that's important yeah. to the Rune Lord saga. So we're going to break this up kind of how we normally do it. I'm going to talk a little bit about the lore in the real world around the Lamia. Tim, you're going to talk about Pathfinder, lore, and then Griffin's going to be tackling the stat block. So without further ado, let's go ahead and, and jump into it. So before I had ever played Pathfinder, I had never actually heard of the word Lamia. I did not know about it. And then when I started doing my homework for this, I was shocked that I had not heard about it because there are so many tales and there are so many stories about the Lamia or Lamias or creatures that are like Lamias. This was actually quite a bit of research I had to do for this creature. I was really surprised. Mm -hmm. So in general, there are three widely accepted origin tales for the creature, the Lamia. So it was either a child eating monster, a knight haunting spirit slash daemon, or a queen of Libya who had an affair with Zeus, which for those of you who know your classic Greek myth, shouldn't be too terribly much of a surprise. But then Hera found out about this as she usually does in these stories and forced Lamia, this queen, to eat Zeus's and her offspring and then cursed her with permanent insomnia. And in a turn of fate that you normally don't see in stories where Zeus just like hits it and quits it, he actually comes back and shows some sort of remorse for this. <laughs> Interesting. Out of character, yeah, right? Very out of character for yeah. Zeus. So she still had all of these curses and still had ended up eating her children. But Zeus gave her this gift of prophecy and the ability to remove her eyes in order to fight the sleeplessness that she had. So wow. that's kind of interesting. Does that help? Is that <laughs> removing the eyes? I don't know, <laughs> but I guess according to the myth, it does. Okay. I mean, I don't think it checks out, but... <laughs> Listen, we're not doctors. Right. So then those are kind of the three normal origin tales for like a Lamia. But since then, it's become this sort of catch-all term for monsters that tend to be female and have serpentine qualities. Oftentimes in Lamia stories or poems or epics or what have you, these are temptress characters. Oftentimes you'll hear them eating the flesh of those that they sleep with. And like some of the creatures that we've talked about in previous My Favorite Monster segments, the story of Lamia in these older cultures was generally used to frighten children. You know, don't act out or the Lamia will, I guess, sleep with you and eat you. <laughs> we'll sleep with you. Now, now, Billy. Yep. So you all, you all know I like to talk about etymology a little bit. This one I thought was kind of fun. The term Lamia is actually debated where it comes from. There are two trains of thought here. It either means nocturnal spirit, uses a root word in the actual word Lamia, which could mean nocturnal spirit, or big throat. Oh. Which, take from that what you will. Right, okay. I will. I didn't realize how horny this Lamia thing was going to get. It's going to get much <laughs> worse. Down. I know it is. So... Those three sort of pseudo origin stories that I'd mentioned before are just kind of the roots of the Lamia. But then through history, you have so many more stories of Lamia. There was a retelling of that original Zeus and Hera myth done by Diodorus Siculus, who is a renowned Greek historian. That is a cool ass name. It's that cool. Is Diodorus Siculus. Yeah. So I guess what this dude did was he would take these old myths 
and then retell them so that they were... He, he basically removed a lot of the fancifulness. Mm-hmm. And as I explain this, I think this might make sense. So he changes Lamia from the the queen that she was into... She, she was like a little bit more of a mythical figure. Now she's just a regular human queen. Zeus and Hera are completely out of the picture. But Lamia was just an evil queen who commanded her troops to round up kids and kill them just on a whim because she was evil. She was super beautiful. And he explained her serpentine features as when she would get angry, her entire visage would change. Not physically, but, you know, she would look enraged. She had a, a she was like a, a, a bombshell 10 out of 10. But then when she'd get mad, she'd be yelling and like Hold the Bilbo Baggins. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And then he even goes so far as to say the, the removable eyes detail was actually an allegory for her drunkenness. She would just get like well, she would get drunk to go to sleep. Yeah, she would get drunk to go to sleep, and then that's when the town could go around and do their business without worry of making her upset. There are additional further tales of her that pop up in writings from Aristotle, which is pretty cool, but it's oh. unclear whether or not this was actually a Lamia. People debate that. But this is where I, I, I get a little worried that I'm doing the fans a disservice because I'm just hitting the high level myths here. But there are so many of them. Lamia makes appearances in writings by Horace, Apollonius, tales told by the Byzantines. So completely, basically a completely different t- culture also had Lamia tales. Lamia existed in myths in Libya, Apuleius's The Golden Ass. She's in that. And in all of these tales, there are common themes of seduction, serpentine visages, referring to her as a monster. People in these myths will just talk about other monsters and liken them to Lamias because that just becomes a catch-all term the later you go in these myths. In fact, these myths continue into the Middle Ages, and one text appears in the Middle Ages to conflate Lamia and Lilith, which... If you are caught up on your zones of truth, that name might sound familiar to you. And some historians actually believe, citing this as an example, that the myths of Lamia, all of these that I've just said, stemmed from stories in Mesopotamia about Lamashtu. It's pretty coincidental that we're doing these basically back to back here. There's actually a modern common Greek proverb saying, the child has been strangled by the Lamia. It's what people apparently in Greece will say to explain the sudden death of a child. Oh. Which, right? Now you now that's a direct parallel with the um, Lamashtu stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to fly through a couple more and then we're just going to move on to the Pathfinder stuff because I know there's some really cool, juicy lore that exists in the Galarian setting here. Where are you going to see Lamia in pop culture? So any story that has the Scylla or Scylla, I'm not exactly sure how to say that word, S-C-Y-L-L-A. Scylla. Scylla or Medusa. People generally refer to them as types of Lamia. There are Slavic folklore tales that describe Lamia as types of dragons. There is a mouse in New Guinea that's called the Lamia. Don't know why. And a genus of longhorn beetle is also called Lamia. It's, I heard of the Lamia far, yeah. far earlier than Pathfinder because of your obsession with mice? It was in uh, Dragon Warrior Monsters. Oh, sure. Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Hell yeah. The demon hunting the main character in the film Drag Me to Hell is called Alamia. There's a city in Greece called Lamia. They have their own soccer team. There's a river in Uganda called Lamia. But I think today, 
Most people would be familiar with the concept of a Lamia from popular anime and manga series Monster Masume. Oh, yeah, sure. Where one of the main characters is a Lamia. Yep. Yep. I think, that's, that. I think that's where most people have that cultural touchstone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's most people's first interaction with a Lamia. Wait, yeah, is this sure. town in Greece? It's are they like the Lamia Lamias? Like that's their mascot too? I think so. Yeah. Lamia Lamias. <laughs> I think so. It's so weird. Yeah, it's called like Lamia Football Club or Lamia FC. Okay. So there you go. Like I said, I, I feel like I hit stuff really high level, but there are just so many stories and I wanted to give a lot of them at least a passing mention because there's so much cool stuff there. And that just reinforces my point in the beginning that I'm shocked that I'd never heard the word Lamia because apparently every myth is or is about a Lamia. It's pretty widespread. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tim, you want to tell us a little bit about the lore and Pathfinder around Lamia? Yeah, well, when you initially asked me for some, some rune lord creatures, it was kind of, once I thought of it, it was to me like a really obvious choice because I knew that the Lamia existed outside Pathfinder, but I really didn't know that it was like that deep, what you just described. Mm -hmm. um, but rune lords has the main, I mean, the main enemies are usually humans or humanoid things or, or maybe giants, but the Lamias play a big role in Rise of the Rune Lords. And I'll keep it spoiler light. I'm not going to mention any names or anything, but... No specific clock towers. Yeah. No. Well, so, <laughs> yeah, no specific clock towers, yeah. No, no, so, nowhere under a large bridge. Keep locations. Uh, yeah. Also spoiler free. <laughs> we'll keep that out. So the, the original information about them is actually coming from 3.5's publications of Rise of the Rune Lords, and they're in the bestiaries in there. So it's not like it's like something that was already part of D&D, from what I understand. So Paizo did make it up for Galarian, or I guess adapted it from the real world for Galarian, and made their own sort of history and like folklore about them, and mostly surrounding the, the region of Eregia. So in Pathfinder, the Lamia comes from a, a particular event that happened in the ancient times of Siv, S-I-V. And I have looked and I'm curious if anybody else knows what Siv is, but like I've looked for what the time of Siv is. I have no idea what where, when that is. I so thought that was like, a typo. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just S-I-V. So maybe they dropped this era in history, but presumably it was a very, very long time ago. Mm -hmm. And there was a person called the Lamia of Avalos who was operating a place called the Shrine of the Fateless, which was one of the most world-renowned places you could go to seek an oracle reading of your future. And all the priestesses that worked there followed Phrasma. They sacrificed like their own futures, essentially, to be able to see the futures of others. And they would get people coming in to see their future and decided at some point that the effort wasn't worth it or something like that. They got greedy and started taking more and more money and not giving accurate readings. Mm -hmm. And so Phrasma got really angry and came in, faced the Lamia of Avalos as an old woman who wanted a reading then basically experienced what everybody else is experiencing, like had to pay a lot for it. It was false. And then Phrasma like revealed herself. It said that her eyes filled the room and then like gave this woman like a really horrible vision of beasts and monsters and stuff like that. And then when she came out of it, she was like a half 
beast. I think she was actually like half lion. Mm. Like most of the Lamias in Pathfinder, the base ones are like bottom half is lion, top half is a person. So that's how the lineage started. It was like all these priestesses in the shrine of the Fateless. Some time passes. I have no idea when. I mean, Phrasma is no longer the god of prophecy in the current day Galarian. So presumably a long time. But they kind of hang around Thassalon. I think they were attracted to the sort of positions and goals that the Thessalonian rune lords would put them in because they really enjoy greed and avarice and, and basically indulging themselves on sin. And some of them even back in Thassalon would like follow, like basically created like a church that was kind of like giving them clerical powers from the sin of greed. And so they would be in Shinshalas, the capital city, and sort of have a whole like cult dedicated just the concept of greed. <laughs> they would do that. And I'm sure they were in, in some other areas as well. But um, it seemed like Holtzbelkson and Varigia is kind of mostly where they hang out. In modern day Varigia, they still are alive and kicking. But I think most of the time they stick to the shadows. They kind of have like a role in a lot of campaigns as a schemer. You know, mm, so the, the Lamia Matriarch. No, I don't yeah. Like that. <laughs> they would like be the head of a cult, and maybe the cultists don't know that this person is actually a monster, you know, because they take the form of humanoid. And so they would kind of hide in the shadows and just basically just get people to do horrible things for them. And they really get a kick out of that. So that's kind of what most of them do now, except for the ones in Shalots. So I'll keep it kind of. Spoiler light, but there is a whole caste system among Lamias, and all of them pretty much coexist in Shalas, but it seems like most of the other regions, you only encounter like small groups. They're called Lamiros as a group, and it contains the Lamia, which are kind of half lions, they're like lower on the caste list. Lamia matriarchs, which are the half snakes. Herodans, which are the, the top of the pecking order, they're like half lion or panther and they're really really big and then there's the kukrima and the hungers which to me are somewhat oddities because they're mostly monster they don't really look <laughs> human yeah. at all mm -hmm. so like the hungers is like this like huge i guess like big mouth fat grotesque thing that i'm sure you're going to get into stat yeah, blocks a, about this they're, they're nasty yeah yeah, so that's pretty much it with, I guess, the, the lore without spoiling too much. They're really, I guess if you're going to use them in your game, they're really good for kind of being the background bad guy at the end of a book or at the end of a chapter. So, Yeah, love the parallel there to the real world folklore. They had some sort of tie to prophecy. I love seeing that, that seems like the folks at Paizo did their due diligence and like actually tried to learn what the actual myths and incorporate them into the building of the character. Yeah. And a little surprised to see uh, Phrasma make an appearance there. Yeah, that was she's, pretty cool. She's usually not a meddler. Usually pretty distant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not back in the day. Oh, yes. The ancient times of Civ that we are all familiar all, with. All of us. Yeah, yes. that blew my mind. I mean, it's like their first AP, so I think mm -hmm. it probably got ditched. But, you know, it's interesting. Yeah, I, it, it could be renamed because there's like 40 ages, age of creation, age of serpents. Like yeah. it, it could just be another name for one of those, I'm assuming. It could have been. Yeah, yeah. I did want to mention, I forgot that why they're so like angry all the time is because they're apparently like still mad about the curse and like trying to like find a way to get rid of it. 
And so that was also a reason why they hung around wizards and oh, that sort sure. of society. But the, that apparently is why they're so evil. Is like they just don't want to be a monster. Yeah, that's why the yeah. hungerers uh, became a thing in the first place because they thought flesh warping might be able to get them back to their original appearance. I think this is a pretty natural segue here then. I know, Tim, you threw out some variants of Lamia here. Griff, you want to tell us a little about maybe the core Lamia, about how they work, and then if you want to highlight some of the cool mechanics or builds of these variants, it could be fun. Yeah. So let's talk about the core thing. It's a CR6 creature. It's not uh, Mm -hmm. terribly powerful, but I think it's normally a book two monster in Paizo Adventure Pass, and they're a large monstrous humanoid, but they only have five feet reach because they're a medium-sized humanoid torso, and so they use undersized weapons for their size category. They can also attack with the lion lower body, so they get claw attacks and that kind of thing. I think all Lamias have some form of spell casting. They are all slightly magical. And so the base version, and most of them have a version of Disguise Self. That's how they infiltrate things. So they have that at will, and they have ventriloquism. And then a couple times a day, they can charm monster, create a major image, cast mirror image on themselves, suggestion on others. Once per day, they have a deep slumber spell. The cool thing about them is that they save those spell-like abilities. They are little schemers Mm -hmm. because their attacks do wisdom drain. And so when they attack somebody, they do a D4 wisdom drain if they hit, and their tactics are that they kind of try and drain the wisdom of of an adversary and then cast suggestion or charm. Knock down the will save Mm -hmm. before hitting them with the big stuff. Absolutely. So in general, they're not overly powerful, the base version. You know, they, they got a 20 AC. It's pretty easy to hit for a group of fifth level adventurers or something and they normally use a dagger but they also have their claws as secondary natural attacks and the claws are what deals the wisdom drain so i saw it mentioned in in somewhere about the wisdom drain was supposed to represent that they are like stealing the futures of the enemies or something like that that's I think cool. it plays into their lore a little bit. Hell yeah. Yeah, unlike other creatures that do Wisdom Drain, this doesn't heal Lamias. Some other creatures that have oh. that ability, it that by them doing the Drain, it heals them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do the same thing. For Lamias, a Lamia Matriarch, we kind of talked about how they're different with the snake-like lower half, but they are CR8, and they have a lot of the same abilities. This is the varietal that looks a lot like the image that most people are familiar with, the, that one from Monster Masume. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> the, the base version here, though, does have the two weapon fighting feats, and so they can turn into kind of a blender because they have two plus one scimitars and can attack five times. Mm-hmm. So that gets dangerous pretty quickly. They have the same spell-like abilities, but then they have a repertoire of spells that they know that they can cast. They have haste and death knell, invisibility, cure light wounds, divine favor, mage armor, magic missile. So these are all things that I think they're kind of built without spell strike a little magacy in that way that they have kind of a limited spell repertoire and they also are pretty decent martial combatants. Yeah. Those are all go-to spells. Those are yeah, those are pretty decent. Yeah, they cast as a 6 level sorcerer and they still have that wisdom drain ability. So I believe this is like heading towards book 2 big bad territory at a CR8. Yeah. And then the Harridan is the CR12 
version, which is actually a giantess from the waist up. So that's why they're bigger. It's like a, I don't know that it really says what type of giant on the top, but it's a giant on the top with a huge big cat. So huge size category, big cat on the bottom. And they're a lot harder to hit. AC 28, they use great swords and claws and can touch wisdom drain instead of having to attack. And it's like a D8 of wisdom drain, so it's a lot more. And they have a ton more spells. They have up to six level spells. They prepare spells like a cleric. And they just like, I mean, they get a ton of feats as well. They're pretty cool creatures to run. Really high strength, 26 strength. So something you would more likely see in like a giant than you would in an actual humanoid. And they actually speak giant. Mm -hmm. So it's strange. I don't I don't know if you read anything about these in terms of their creation versus the original Lamia's creation. But No, uh, not at all. No, yeah, it's, it's weird to me that the giants would get kind of blended into this. Yeah, I didn't notice that connection. Like I knew they were bigger, but I guess I didn't put two and two together. That's interesting they have the language too. Yeah. yeah. I do see for the Haridan and for the Matriarch that they seem like good candidates to put class levels on. Yeah. So like the book two one is just like notorious for TPKing parties because of the rogue levels on top of like five attacks. And, well, rogue like levels that. and then it casts spells like a six level sorcerer or whatever. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's dangerous in that way. Very. And then this hungerer thing, I just got to talk about this for a second. Oh, it's so cool. CR 15. <laughs> And it's huge. It's it's the one that's just this mutated blob, horrible, aberration-looking thing. It's it's actually not an aberration, but I feel like it's a good candidate for <laughs> for looking like one. It's got a huge AC, you know, AC 31, DR, cold iron, and piercing, uh, immune to acid and poison, resists electricity and fire, has 26 spell resistance, has clearly been, like, magically worked on. And... They just have this massive bite that is an X4 critical. Ooh. It has a 19 to 20 crit range, so oh. it's like an improved critical bite with a higher multiplier for the critical. And its devastating bite ability is that it does this crit damage, and if it takes you negative, you need to succeed a DC 34 save or be decapitated, bitten in half, or otherwise instantly killed by the horrific wound. And they could also just like vomit stuff. <laughs> People with this vile spew ability. They're so messed up internally that they spew like their stomach acid and their own like internal bleeding oh on to their enemies. And um, something maybe not stat wise about these, but that's interesting is that they just like they prefer to eat the living, but they just devour anything. Like they've been seen just eating stones uh, and it doesn't yeah. seem to hurt them. <laughs> Well, that's why they're all messed up inside. They're out there eating rocks and stuff. Yeah. They, it, do they have a fly speed? They do. They have, Well, they have a constant fly yeah. Um, yeah. effect. So they, yeah, they do fly. They have a stench aura, of course, because why not? Why not? Yeah. They're these big, nasty things. I, I feel like you definitely throw one of these at your party for the shock factor of it all. Yeah. And then the final one is that Chucharima, is that how you were I'm saying I'm not sure how you yeah. say it. But I don't know yeah. how you say it either. They're CR8. They're like a vulture up top, mm-hmm. and they're archers. And, you know, they have, they have pretty much the other standard Lamia abilities, except that they can, um, if they take a single shot, they have this ability called Catastrophic Shot, which makes the bow's crit range 18 to 20 for that one shot mm-hmm. in a round. 
And they actually use an oversized weapon for whatever reason. It's like uh, all other okay. Lamias use a weapon one size category lower than how big they are, and these use one size category higher because why have consistency? That's called game balance. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're the only ones that are medium sized, I think. Okay, sure. Yeah. A little more. There's not a ton more that's super interesting about them. Yeah, them and the hungers felt like the odd ones out. I mean, it's like a vulture. Yeah. They're yeah. a vulture, and they, they deal disease with their bite and yeah. stuff to kind of factor in that they're like a carrion bird. Yeah, it looks like a rock or something. Mm-hmm. It's like... Uh, that's, a, that's the ones you can play. They all sound uniquely interesting. I, d- I do like them a lot. But I think Tim's absolutely right. I think class levels are the way to go with these enemies because they have a really good chassis, and so building on top of that can make them very difficult foes. Yeah. It can be really an interesting thing to add some cleric levels sometimes because they tend to be like I said in these cult situations and oftentimes in cahoots with Lamash too kind of what we were hinting at earlier or you know other other bad guys so yeah works out alright well this has been a fun journey that we've gone on talking about this creature but we gotta talk about rune lords you guys ready to do that oh yeah okay so just in case it wasn't painfully obvious Last night, we had our final encounter of our off-pod Rune Lords Saga mm-hmm. game. I say Rune Lords Saga because it's not just one adventure path that we played with Tim at the helm. So let's just talk about where we were and how we got to that point. And then, Tim, I have a ton of questions for you from our Discord about right. the campaign and how you did specific things. So cool. first of all, start us off. When did we start this? And then we'll talk about what we actually played. Rise of the Rune Lords was our first series foray into d and mm-hmm. I think we technically started with the beginner box mm-hmm. and then, or Pathfinder should say, but we had the Pathfinder beginner box and then we went right into Rise and it was me, you, Brooks and Emily. And I think it was in 2016, uh, if I'm not mistaken, like spring or so. So it's been maybe five and a half years from start to finish. And yeah, it was, um, I mean, the start was crazy because I was just, I wanted to play so badly and I wasn't sure that you guys would be into it. And then Mm -hmm. we got to the point where we were just like playing multiple sessions a day, like in the summer and just going crazy over it and uh, haven't stopped. Yeah, we really dove in there head first. I mean, we were texting (laughs) each other all the time. Dove in is a light term. Yeah, Yeah. really dove in. Yeah, we were texting each other all the time. We were playing one or two weekday games, and then we would play on the weekend, like big ass sessions. It was pretty wild. But that wasn't the first time that you had ever played that AP, correct? Yeah, that's right. I was, I think the previous year had started Rise with a group of friends from college, Mm -hmm. and we were doing it online on Roll20. So yeah, I technically was like, there was some overlap, but I GM'd the AP twice. Why'd you do that? Why would you do something new? So I think it was a, a time was a big thing. It was like mm-hmm. very comfortable to GM the same thing twice. It felt fresh to you guys, but then to me it was like I could make adjustments too. Um, so it worked with, what didn't. Yeah, and, and then you can, so the second time I feel like I corrected a lot of my mistakes. Same story, maybe that wasn't as interesting, but the fact that the prep was so much easier, you know, going into it was really nice. I was gonna say, you kind of need that if you're gonna be playing three sessions a week or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you at need some, to run it. At some point I had to be like, can we 
I love this, but we need to slow down. It's <laughs> a lot of prep. It's it very true. But we concluded that campaign. It took us a couple years. Yeah. You actually concluded that one in the same room we concluded this one in. Yeah, I yeah. actually was just about to mention that neither you nor Haley was part of that campaign, but we did it at your house just because yeah. we wanted to use the table. Well, Tim was living here at the time. So oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we wrap up Rise, and now we're friends with you guys. We're friends with Chris, and we wanted to get to a spot, but there's an adventure path. That was standing in our way. Yeah, Shattered Star. Yes. So we did not play that one in full. How did we no. do it and why did we do it that way? And I'll just clarify, this is where we introduced uh, Griffin and Chris into the Rune Lord's little family that we built. Right, yeah. So Shattered Star isn't necessarily critical to the story of the Rune Lords, while it is heavily involved and there's a lot of cool lore in there. And I think we were just really excited to get to return. Uh, mm -hmm. We'd rather just go ahead and get going on that. And what we decided on is we could do a couple of things, experience the story of Shattered Star, but at the same time, develop some characters that then you can bring back into Return. So Return has this sort of mechanic towards the end. It's in the player's guides. It's not you know, surprising to anyone, but it's like you bring old characters back to play a secondary role. And so just being able to get like a few new characters from Griffin and Chris, so that I could plug those in uh, was another reason to do it. And the way that we handled it, it was basically just like a narratively driven, like you have characters going through each book. We did some light die rolls where as you had to do, like, so you're, you're in a combat and you're a strength character, you would roll depending on your strength score, like a bigger or smaller die. So if you're not strong as a D4, if you are strong, it could be like a D12 or even a D20. Mm -hmm. So not a balanced system, but it allowed us to like still stay like active and go through each book and each of the stories and kind of get a idea of what Shattered Star is all about. But yeah, it wasn't a full playthrough. Um, Bang through it in like one session, right? It was one like day, like yeah. yeah. Two, three or four hours or something. I can't quite remember. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we did the entire AP basically. We'll go through a book a half hour almost. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> we might have like entirely skipped book four and five. I think it was getting late and you're just like, okay, here's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. We're going to do the finale, guys. Shatterstar is awesome though. Like if you're looking for dungeon crawls, mm -hmm. give those books a read. It's so great. Yeah. I may go back and read those one day because it would be fun. Um, but yeah, I, I know you had described that story as being a little bit more dungeon crawling. It's like, okay, well, we do want to come to this big epic return yeah. story and don't necessarily just want to be like grinding to get there yeah. or feel like we are. So I guess that does actually take us to Return of the Rune Lords, which we just concluded. Talk to me about how everything came together for that adventure path with the five of us what did you pull in from the old campaigns how did it affect your prep just any thoughts on how you brought everything together for that story yeah so the way i kind of did it is we had these baseline sort of characters from before i kind of knew already how i was going to bring those in but then our new characters you guys all sent me uh great backstories and i kind of just keep everything in like a living document on one note and Return has a huge time travel element to it, which made things a little bit complicated. But as things happened, I could just update this document, get rid of ideas, add ideas, and sort of make sure that I always had 
a plan in mind so that I don't end up in the trap of like excessive paradoxes that like mm-hmm. things are really weird and don't make sense. So that time aspect of it made it a little bit challenging, but overall, like I kind of liked this time around bringing everything together with sort of, I guess, this living document to kind of update all the time. That was kind of my general strategy. We had the three characters that you guys had in Rise, and they joined two of the Shattered Star characters, Griffin and Chris's characters, to be the Sahedrin heroes in that campaign. And then I didn't want to get rid of the other three Shattered Star characters, so mm-hmm. they kind of played a role in Magnamar as part of the Pathfinder Society there, doing some investigation. But I, I had to come up with a reason for for why they weren't like helping out. Uh-huh. And so each of them had like some sort of debilitating problem that they couldn't adventure anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I think uh, your character was some sort of spellcaster and I think yeah, he would just like, his like mind was not working well anymore and he had like the shakes. I thought he was getting old way too fast or something. Oh no, you're Cause, right. Cause my original character, I had no idea how to like write a backstory or any real idea if we were even going to continue the game beyond yeah. beyond a session or two so i'm like uh she doesn't know who she was she uh, she's from the past there was she something happened and then, and then like we retroactively like went back and made that story work but this character was related to her and also from the past so, like time was catching up to him too fast as right. he had moved into the present yeah you're right yeah, yeah. i don't remember uh Bruce and emily's uh, they must not have been that memorable no, I think uh, I think Emily's was the daughter of the uh, what is his name? Quink is like a professor type character who's like in Sandpoint. We start out in Rise. Mm-hmm. So there was like a tie in there. And then I think Brooks's character was named Oikum and his previous character was Deutschum. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. That is right. So those are sort of the minor characters that we pulled in. But uh, yeah, I hope that answers the question. I, you know, that's kind of how I brought everything together. Yeah, it was great. Um, it felt Avengers Endgame in a way. Oh, yeah. You get to bring everybody together in different ways, but also there are elements of return that you've hinted to of traveling through time. So you really do hit lots of different highlights of not only the previous adventures you may have played, but also really important moments in Galarian history and your characters are there for them. So you actually end up very learning. TVA. Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. You actually end up learning a lot of lore and context for things that, to me, were always big question marks. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool, and I really enjoyed that. Before we hop into some of the questions that we've received on the, on the Rune Lord saga that we put together, I just do have one final question of my own. Tim, do we have a death count of how many people died along the way for this story? I could be wrong. So permanent deaths I think there is five so we had Brooks lose two characters in Rise mm-hmm. we had Emily lose one character and then we had Chris lose a character and Griffin lose a character in return mm-hmm. which I think means that, Steve you survived technically both campaigns yes. my, but my, you, you my, did my, die my first the character that I brought to the first session in both campaigns made it all the way through. And I will also say, I'm the only player who's had a character make it out of the beginner box all the way through. Oh, true. Because Brooks and Emily did not reuse their beginner box characters, but I did because I wanted to take shortcuts. And you kept kept that plus one 
Dragonbane longsword that's a yep. beginner box you get at the end mm-hmm. uh, till the end of the campaign. So, yeah, and then we had, I mean, everybody listening at home knows that these adventures go high. I yeah. think Rise ended at 17, I believe, and then Return ends at 20. Yeah. So, inherently, with the system, you are going to have lots of deaths. I mean, nobody escaped clean. Yeah. Everybody died multiple times. Yeah, once you get to, like, you know, book three or four, you you start to have reincarnations and then eventually resurrection spells on the mm-hmm. table or other other magic, certainly, uh, which I did want to... died once. Yeah. From the, I don't think yeah. I had a, ever had a second one after book three. Yeah. I remember your book three. You're probably right about that. Yeah. I only remember the one. That was at least a really memorable one, for sure. Yeah, yeah and we ended up using sort of a scroll of res on Garrity and that you know there was something with his backstory that I thought was really cool when he died but that actually happened as well like we kind of brought people's stories in I think when Brooks's character Udmir died then there was a chance to see him sort of in the river of souls before he got resurrected mm-hmm. um, but then we also had a lot of wacky reincarnates yes uh, oh man <laughs> Emily. Emily yeah in Rise Emily's animal companion was a wolf named Beaker after their dog and got reincarnated and we rolled on the table all these cool options alligator you know like a badger or something but cobra right yeah like a big snake or whatever right something yeah. awesome and and then she got horse so we just had <laughs> a horse with a dog personality which I thought was hilarious and then Emily's character died like and changed races like three times I think in return uh, yeah it went from sylph to elf to full orc yeah yes <laughs> all right we did get a whole bunch of questions previously Tim I would like to move through them kind of quickly because oh, sure. we still want to get to some of the questions from our live audience after this yeah I'm gonna kind of lightning round you through these if that's cool that sounds great these are all related to the rune lord saga so the first one comes from a listener called crusty crust rune lords just a fatter here to stay here to stay okay if one of the rune lords who didn't succeed in returning had to return which one would you choose azutha he's cool yeah Wait, which one is he again he is the rune lord of gluttony and mm-hmm. uh he survived by making a phylactery out of like this tome that split into three parts it's really cool nice yeah listener jason joke question what does each rune lord bring to a potluck all right sorshin rune lord of lust brings an entire roast pig xander ghoul rune lord of Pride brings a giant multi-tiered cake that is mostly fondant. Kartsog, the rune lord of greed, just brought a can of beans that he stole from a food drive. Zune lord, uh, gluttony, uh, 300 white castle sliders. Hell yeah. Rune lord Croon. Slidebration, baby. Croon is the rune lord of sloth, so he just burnt some rice. Dude, Croon definitely brings some uh, chowder to the... Some chowder. Oh, you gotta get some chowder in there, too. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, that'd be good. Bellamarius is the rune lord of envy. So she also brought a roast pig, but it's not as good. And Elaznest, as a rune lord of wrath, brought some habanero-infused whiskey. Hell yeah, that rock. Punishing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you put some really good thought into that. Knowing those rune lords' personalities, this, this is a very well-constructed <laughs> answer. I just love the, the can of beans that he stole from a food truck. Yeah. Just oh, really wow. cheap. <laughs> really cheap. All right. He's got a non-joke question, though. What did session prep look like for this group? I think we touched on that a little bit, right? Where yeah, yeah. You were able to cut some corners with Rise because you'd done it before, but then Return was a lot more focused because, you know, you were trying to pull together all these different things. Tell me I'm wrong here. Yeah, definitely. And working with you guys also, I should say, is uh, is really easy. So it's like 
I feel like prep is fun. Hell yeah. Yeah. Man. Well, we're professionals. <laughs> um, sure. If you could name the fourth entry in the series, what would you call it? And would it be for Pathfinder, Starfinder, or Pathfinder 2nd Edition? I first was going to say Rune Lords in Space, mm-hmm. but I actually think I would love to see something called, I, I would call it Rune Forged, maybe for 2nd Edition. There is, in Book 5 of Rise, light spoiler, there's like a laboratory where people have been living for the past 10,000 years since Thassalon fell. They've been trapped in this Denny plane where they like all were supposed to do research. That's where I want another adventure to be. Yeah. Just like somewhere in that 10,000 year span. Maybe maybe it'll be sort of like The Office, but it's like... The Office. Um, <laughs> just a bunch of like scientists in the... <laughs> Book five of Rise was one of my favorite books to play in of all time, and it is written by the guy that made Deepmar. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah. okay. Oh, Stephen Greer? Yeah, that's right. I love You and I had talked about this question last night mm-hmm. for the You're- Starfinder port. I would definitely name it uh, Revenge of the Rune Lords. Oh, yes. Yeah. That's I true. Separately also had thought Revenge of the Rune <laughs> Revenge Lords. of the Rune Lords, yeah. I think that's a logical from a naming standpoint, yeah. but it also could be cool. Like, I think that implies that, you know, they're back in... They're not just like trying to survive anymore. It's yeah. gloves are coming off. I would love to see the what are the are the swords of sin machine guns now in, in Starfinder. In Starfinder? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'd love to see some of that stuff in play. I think it depends. I don't know that all of them have been ported over, but I know the gluttony one has. Yeah, it's like right. a machine gun and they like put the sword under it as a bayonet. <laughs> it's cool. That rocks. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's so great. Corey McCreary, he's asking you. Which sin was most prevalent at the table? I mean, bunch of loot goblins, I gotta say greed. Mm. Yeah. I won't argue with that. <laughs> there was some wrathful moments, I would say. Militia well, business. Yeah. <laughs> greed and wrath, I think, are, are <laughs> greed fair. Greed and wrath, bog standard. Mm. All right. Biomechanomagical. Return is unusual for going all the way to level 20. Did your group had fun at max level, or were encounters too easy or too hard? You guys can talk about how fun it was, but I will say it was really tough to balance the encounters. I, you know, they say this all the time. It's kind of a knife's edge. People die a lot and you don't want the tipping to go too far. So that was really rough from a GM perspective, but uh, I still still kept, I tried to keep it light and had, you know, jokey sessions and kind of have fun with it. Yeah. What do you think, Griff? Oh, it definitely had a blast. And I think there was a good level of difficulty in this AP whether it was written in or you had balanced it that way. But I I think we felt the pressure pretty much the entire way. There were definitely some fights where it was just like, okay, you know, this is over. I full round with the bow or mm, whatever. I'm okay with that is the thing is like, if there's going to be a fight, I'd rather just be like too easy than than just like destroy everybody. You know, you know, (laughs) it's going to be a challenging adventure when book six is a Greg Vaughn book. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Did we not mention that? Yeah, Brooke. Book six is written by Greg Vaughn. It's a meat grinder. And it's definitely where we had (laughs) most of our deaths. A lot of the deaths in book six. Uh, I will say we saw a little bit of everything here. So we had encounters that we were able to like cheese out with abilities that we had that maybe weren't accounted for. Whether that's your prep or literally like the monster stat block is just like level 20 characters are going to have a variety of things that they can do. And some of them are not accounted for. I'm Uh, going to put this big construct in a maze. Uh, Right. Sorry. I'm like, okay, next combat. <laughs> yeah, the, stuff like that. We had moments like that where we could just kind of blow through stuff, but then we had stuff where we were really, really put to task. Yeah. So having that variety kept it interesting. If, if we could cheese through everything or if everything was life and death, 
stressful, frustrating, neither of those situations are good. Mm -hmm. But since we had a little bit of both and plenty of stuff in the middle, it balanced out just fine. I, I didn't have a problem with that. I thought there was such a good variety of uh, types of creature too. Oh yes. yeah, I yes. thought that was that was really well written in the in the adventure. How, I mean, it was just it was literally everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one of the best parts about Return is that it's at the end of the cycle of life cycle of Pathfinder One. So all of the source books and everything mean that you get tons of variety in enemies. Yeah, yeah, like Bestiary Six stuff. Yeah, is all yeah, pretty yeah. prevalent. Yeah. Quick question. I think this is going to be best answered by Griffin and myself. Did knowing you would each reach class capstones affect your build choices? I'm going to answer this very quickly. No, because like Tim mentioned, my character made it all the way from front to back. But however, I did not expect that to happen. So I didn't even look at anything past like level 10 when I was picking out a class. It was like, well, this character is probably going to die anyway. <laughs> so I'm not going to get too stressed about what the late levels look like. The witch capstone is super not exciting. I'm pretty sure it's just an extra grand hex, but there's an alternate capstone I took that just gave me a plus eight to my intelligence score. So I definitely built big. with with that in mind. Mm -hmm. Just knowing that there was the potential to get a capstone was why for Kyren, it was my first character. It was a really big decision whether or not I wanted to take. I was really thinking about taking like a level or two in Brawler. Mm -hmm. uh, just to, the martial flexibility in addition to the gloom blade is a really cool combo, but losing out on the gloom blades capstone would have been a bummer. And then for Garrity, I really wanted that true judgment that you get, even if it's a low save, it's just so cool as a capstone. So I didn't want to dip, even though I kind of thought maybe a ranger dip would have been good for him uh, because I wasn't anything more than a buffing spellcaster. But all came together okay. Got a question from Smiggle here, Tim. Who had the weirdest slash most obnoxious from a GM standpoint build? <laughs> All right. Uh, well, definitely short-lived character here, but Chris's Shattered Star character, Diadrex, was a bloat mage who sat on a levitating chair and moved around and went brah, brah, to shoot like location. Yeah, mm -hmm. zubap. <laughs> So that was probably the weirdest build. Yeah. Uh, but I do want to shout out because I, I was thinking about all your characters and Brooks's first character. I mean, we were just really new to the system. And Brooks's first character was like a stealthy archer rogue. But he wanted to get sneak attack off. Tried to Skyrim it. All of us. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so sneaky archer. But all of us were trying to figure out the rules. Like all of us could not figure out how this oh. worked. Like how it was supposed to work. So nobody had like obnoxious builds, but I remember being like, oh man, this is really just challenging, like rules wise to, to, to happen. Yeah, for sure. Th those were some pretty memorable builds. Absolutely. Jeez, for you too, like finishing two books with a witch in the party. Oh, or yeah. Two, both two campaigns them. with a witch in the party is tough. Oh yeah. The witch in Rise had the slumber hex, which was the bane of my existence. <laughs> Uh, I purposely did not take yes. it for a turn. Yeah, which I appreciate. <laughs> Can I play a witch with the caveat that I won't take the slumber hex <laughs> yep. line? Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, then I just started putting people in the maze. Yeah, the maze, and then uh, you would you, you could lower saves and then like dominate monsters pretty easily and stuff. That was God, after after yeah. you did the, that alternate capstone. You you're, those. DCs became ridiculous. Insane. You had like a DC 34 my, on my, a dominate. My level nine enchant, because I specialized in enchantment. So mm -hmm. my level nine enchantment spells were, yes, a DC 34 to save against. That's like matches the highest saves of the final boss of 
return. Like the uh, any vocation specialist, let's say that. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, speaking of, we got from like Random Lad eighty eight. How was the final encounter, and did it live up to your expectations? Oh yeah, I feel like it went really well. I mean, like I said, these encounters are tough to balance, but uh, just the fact that really it was after it was all done that everybody, you know, in, during the session as a GM, you get really excited when players are like discussing strategy and they're into mm-hmm. it and they're like trying to figure out the best way forward when things are going bad. So I could tell that it was like going okay. Uh, but then afterwards, when we're all just like, feeling sort of the the relief the relief yeah the sort of all that that tension goes away and then you think about all the nostalgia from the last five and a half years like it was an incredible day Mm -hmm. um it was so much fun yeah we were sweating it was a tough encounter it was level 20 with lots and lots of ads a big bad that was very challenging very difficult at a certain point it was just my character and your character that were up Yep. Against against the big bad who had just like pulled my arrows out of herself like yeah. she wasn't <laughs> like she wasn't taking a ton of damage. And you I think we took a break there and you and I talked for a solid twenty minutes yep. about what we could possibly do. Yeah, Chris to went get home to, to feed his cats and the two of us were like, Okay, we're gonna go in the kitchen and just figure this out. And our plan worked. It did work. It worked. Yeah. I got a a notification here from Haley saying that we got something going on over here. Yeah, so on that note, just finishing that fight yesterday, Demuth has actually asked, what was Tim's favorite fight or encounter in the entire trilogy? Ooh, that is a tough question. I think a really memorable one for sure was in book three with there was a there was basically sort of you're having to defend enemies from outside of this house. You're, you're having to defend, prevent them from coming in, right? So there's a lot of planning and setting up, like how you want to handle the defense of this this manner. You're, you're basically under siege. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did we play that one on a weekend? I think we did. We, we did the whole thing, yeah. and that yeah. would have been a multiple session uh, mm-hmm. combat, if not. And I remember us doing it in one shot. Yeah. Uh, so that that for me definitely up there. That I think that was honestly like my favorite encounter that I've ever been a part of. It was so much fun. That's a tie for me. Well, and I died and I died yeah, at yeah. the end of it. And it was still like one of my favorite encounters I've ever been a part of. Yeah. For me, that was top five, maybe top three. For me, my favorite was the um, the Fort Rannick encounter, which I also died in in oh, Rise. Rise. Definitely. Because we were super noobs and we did the I mean, it's a terrible thing to do to a GM, but we split the party. We had like our our tough guys because we had plenty of like NPCs joining us. So we had like our tough guys assaulting the fortress from the front to pull people away while we sent people around to like go and assassinate the big bad in this uh, terrible fucking plan. And it really <laughs> it really collapsed like a house of cards really fast. But what I enjoyed about it was how we had to think on our feet and as like NPC after NPC after PC started to fall, how we could salvage the situation and the plan kept changing. I mean, it was bad, but sometimes those experiences are the most memorable or fun in retrospect because they're the most exciting because there's so much on the line. It was great. Yeah, my favorite encounters in general are where the players are planning out something and then, you know, okay, let's get the plan to work. Let's have it happen. And then 
one or two rounds in, things start to go mm-hmm. wrong and players are having to be like, what's our plan B? What's our plan C? That's really fun. Ailey, what do you got for us? All right, so I will just start from the top. And so we've got a question from Corey and she's asked, which of the two final bosses did you enjoy running more? Oh, definitely the one from Return. Yeah. Uh, the one from Rise got cheesed a little bit, I would say. I wouldn't know and anything the, about that. Okay, well. What about stat block versus stat block, though? Did you did you still prefer the... That's a good point. Uh, so, like, I think the stat block is is a little more interesting tactically from um, from the first encounter, from Rise. But in return, there's a little bit more variety in the monsters that are alongside the final boss. So um, that in, in terms of that, that was interesting. And there's like a mid-encounter surprise, too. I will say, again, yes, very spoiler-free here. The terrain of oh, yeah. return was much preferable to the terrain in Rise, which is extraordinarily three-dimensional. Return is a pretty much flat plane, which I really liked. It's really hard to do the 3D <laughs> stuff like on a table, you know, normally mm-hmm. you're just stacking boxes. I will say I've never been a part of a combat before where an entire species of creature was wiped out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. That happens. I suppose if you put it that way. <laughs> I, I will put it that way too. <laughs> the guilt weigh heavily on you. I will say in the original, how it's written, you're supposed to kill them yourself. So mm, we're good people. Yeah. Yeah. Good people. All right. What's next? Got a question from Demuth, and he has asked, What's next for Tim? Another AP, GMing, playing? Yeah. Well, I'm playing a little bit in 2E, the uh, Fist of the Ruby Phoenix. I've been really enjoying, GM'd by Chris. And then I do want to continue DMing. Uh, right now, I'm thinking about doing a conversion of Reign of Winter into second edition. But yeah, it'll be a few months before I get going on that. Yeah, that's what's next. Okay. All right. And then we've got a question from Sir Newt. This one's a little more wild, Tim. Are you All ready? Right. <laughs> uh, and this is directly at Tim. There's another one for everyone. But... You and another cast member of your choice have to fight off the evil twins of the rest of the cast. Who do you choose and why? You have 24 hours to prepare. Me and another cast member have to fight evil twins? Of the other cast members. Of everyone else. I think the obvious choice is Griffin because <laughs> he can lift incredible amounts of weight and probably... At least have barricade the door, man. Yeah. <laughs> Could, uh, yeah, then I would be holding off the rest of them. I think that would work out. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Hold the door. Hold the door. <laughs> Thanks. I get to be Hodor. Okay. I'm just sitting completely useless. You <laughs> just drinking a coffee and hanging out. He also has a question for everyone, which is if you could take any one power or ability from one of the rune lords and use it in real life, what would it be? Power or ability of one of the rune lords. Ooh. Um, I mean, I. Light's pretty cool. Like spell casting yeah. too. Like all. Yeah, I guess I don't know because I my uh, my thought immediately went to time stop, but that's a spell. So yeah. like if, if if the answer is spell casting, then yeah, spell casting. Um, I mean, Tim, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're generally just like spell casters. 
that don't yeah. have like special abilities outside of their ability to cast spells. Yeah, sometimes there's some story related um, things that they do. You know, like Zutha is is obviously a lich, and so he has that sort of stuff going on for him. But in general, like this, the schools of magic to be a mastery of. Like I think illusion and like Xander Ghoul and and also his role in return, which I won't spoil, is really interesting. Um, I'd probably choose his power to to mess with the PCs. (laughs) (laughs) I think enchantment is pretty powerful in like a day to day. Mm -hmm. Obviously is like a power that could be used for evil, but uh, it's probably the most generically useful. I don't know how as cool as tossing a fireball out there would be, I don't know that I would use that all the time. I guess, like, if I wanted to be a supervillain, I'd probably pick Wrath. Oh, yeah. It's true. It's an easy decision for me. I'm Team Sorshin all the way. Enchantment, let's go. Plus, like, you get those little Lynx guys. Hell yeah, Yeah. I love cats. I think one thing that is super underrated that I would love to have, even if it's not the casting or anything, is something like a Runewell or like their uh, like the you know the eye of wrath and like they, they each have their planes. kind of demi demi plane that would be so cool to have. That would be sweet. Hang yeah. out. It, it would kind of suck to hang out there for ten thousand years though. It would, sure. but uh, they all made it look like it was fun. That's true. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. <laughs> Some of them are more interesting than others. Like I don't know why you would choose to have a lava waterfall. It's very it's very <laughs> wrathful. <laughs> I guess. It's, yeah, I guess it's cool. But not very practical. But uh, Bellamarius, she, the Rune Lord of Envy, she had like in her demi plane, it like the walls could be whatever you wanted. You could see like a lush garden of greenery, whatever. Isn't that like the point? You can see whatever you want, but you can't have it. I guess you can't have it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But it seems like nice to spend 10,000 years. I wish, I I do wish we would have gotten, and this is like very mild spoilers, but I wish we would have gotten a little bit more with like Kroon because he's kind of taken out he's taken out in the uh, Pathfinder Society one of their years so they they didn't do much with him that's true alright what else we got Haley Steve Demuth has a question for you uh oh and I I hate that I'm being forced to ask this to you okay how would you implement the Rune Lords in the Twilight Saga and what Rune Lord would work best I like. I don't like this. No, thank you, Demuth. No more. <laughs> well, you definitely have your parallel between a Lasnist and like a Victoria or James, in that they're very rat. Yeah, I mean, let's be real. Yeah, Victoria is a Lasnist in Twilight. You definitely do see a lot of enchantment with with all of the standard vampires. I mean, they're. The, the pheromones that they put off and their physical appearances are all meant to entice humans like prey. So I guess that kind of is already built in there. Isn't Bella kind of the the sortion of the Twilight, considering she gets the attention of so many um, <laughs> otherworldly beings. Well, that's a good point. However, Bella has the shield power, which means that... You know, other vampires can't affect her and she oh, can so protect be, others. Who's the Rune Lord of Abjuration? That's Bellamarius. Bellamarius. Yeah. Bellamarius? Oh, yeah, that's, okay. Yeah, okay. There we that go. Itself, I guess. Yeah. 
Uh, I wasn't really thinking of her final book powers. Mm, well, thinking of you know the four books it takes to get there or whatever. They really yeah. build it up. So I, I guess yeah, si- since there are vampires in the Twilight universe that have special powers, not all vampires have special powers, but most of them do. I would say that you would have like elevated versions of those powers be the different rune lords, and they would probably have their own vampire covens. Um, I could see them. Maybe if you rewrote Twilight and then had them show up at the final encounter, kind of how um, Carlisle goes to the rest of the world, you know, covens from Brazil and um, Eastern Europe and brings all the different covens together. He brings together the different rune lords to help protect Bella and Renesme against the Volturi. Um, something like that. Yeah. Quite the deep Thanks, answer. I hate it. <laughs> That was the... Oh, I see there's one more question from uh, Sir Newt. Mm-hmm. And he's asked, Steve, what were some of the backups you have prepped? And I think this would extend if, Griffin, you had other backups prepped as well. So... That's... Man, this is going to feel like a, a disappointing answer to that question, but I had never really... Un- unlike um, on the show, the Hideous Laughter podcast, I hadn't... Um, I didn't prep any backups. I think when you get late enough into the story, you don't really need to, unless something extraordinary happens to your character that you can't bring them back. Because we did have tons of resurrections, and my character died a couple times in both Rise and Return. Um, but I feel like it was late enough in the story that we were able to use those out. What I will say, though, is that the rest of the party in Return were three quarters casters, or whatever you call them. Inquisitor, Bard, War Priest, Magus, and I was the only full caster. So if I was the only one to die, I would come back as another full caster to keep filling that role in maybe a different way. But yeah, your thoughts, Griff? I didn't have a backup after Garrity, uh, mainly because Tim w- Tim kind of told us <laughs> at the start of book three, like, hey, this is kind of your last feels like for the story this is kind of your last opportunity to bring someone else in if you yeah. want to bring someone else in mm-hmm. and so I kind of thought like barring a TPK we would be playing these characters and yeah. so I didn't come up with a backup past like level 8 or something and honestly like I don't know if I would have wanted to play really anyone but uh, Kyron if Garrity had died <laughs> yeah <laughs> I had so much fun when we did our little side trek to hell to see what those characters were up to uh, and it was really fun building him to level 8 I think we were level 8 when we were down there yeah um, that would have been fun to bring back like uh, some of the dead characters in I don't know an alternate timeline perhaps in that little quote unquote interlude we played where you played your dead character um, because I didn't have a dead character and Emily wasn't able to make it to that session I asked Emily if I could play her rise character that died Nymeria oh, yeah. And uh, so that was fun. I, I was able to do that. That was uh, gracious of her, and I enjoyed messing around as a druid. I don't really play them. So that's mm-hmm. cool. There's one small jab at Steve. Uh, Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so Steve's habit of spending half the combat on the ground wasn't present in Tim's games. That was a follow-up from your answer about your backups from Sir Newt. All right, fair enough. Here's what I will say. Here's what I will say. Go to the scoreboard for the final combat. My character took 
four points of damage. My character took zero points of damage. Didn't even get me out of my temporary HP. Nope, me neither. However, everyone else went down, <laughs> and I think Emily was at negative 90-something. Yeah, we had Deathless, the spell on, so you couldn't die from hit point damage, and yeah. this evocation wizard's throwing out, like, 200 points of damage a pop. Okay, I will yep. say, I have never seen a round where with, like, four greater name bullets mm-hmm. that was the most from from my character Garrity that was the most damage I had seen from a player character in the history of me playing the game what was it yeah. like three or four hundred or something with the first three like shots I had 458 damage okay. and then I think I hit with another hit that was another 60 or so yeah so it was over 500 points of damage yeah and the Pretty fact that thing. she like pulled those arrows out of herself was like <laughs> freaked me out uh, so to answer your question, uh, no, I handled it. If we <laughs> if we are taking jabs at Steve, though, come on, I, <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, lay it on. I just think this is kind of funny. I was thinking about this the other day. The um, the first character in Rise he had did die in that Fort Rannick encounter, and <laughs> so he got reincarnated. And I he was not with us at the time. I think I was just hanging out with Brooks and Emily when we did the like rolled on the table. It's like, can we roll on the table real quick? Because uh, we were role playing the basically like getting up to the point where he could be carnated. I was in Cleveland at the time. Oh, at a wedding. Oh, okay. So he said, All right, I guess it's fine. As long as I don't come back as something like a halfling or something, like, please don't do that. And then we rolled halfling. (laughs) 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 And Steve was like, Come on, please. So we allowed him another re roll. (laughs) And it turned out that he was an elf, which was his original race. So, um, but that was so funny. <laughs> yeah. Again, like Rise is where I learned how to not be a shitty player. And it's things like that. And I'm like, ah, I should have just done the half. Yeah. But I, I mean, should've. that's not like a shitty player. Like it's not that bad. I was, yeah. I was being a little complainer. <laughs> All right. We got anything else? That jab was actually the last question that I have in the chat, unless anyone else throws. Oh, you know how hot so. ones. You know how hot ones does the last dab. Mm-hmm. For these live ones, we should definitely have the listeners. Fuck that! Fuck that! No, I'll take them too. I'll take them too. Oh, oh well, okay. Well, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Most yeah. of them will be. Him. I mean, yeah. I think there's got to be a jab <laughs> at both of us. Oh, you think? They, I don't think. I don't think we get to choose what the jab mm. is. I think the jab just—it's the last jab. <laughs> All right, well, uh, you I'll know, wait and, for and, a last jab. All right, at the expense of this probably coming at my expense, this will probably be funny enough that we should probably just <laughs> we should probably just allow the last jab. <laughs> all right, uh, some somebody, one of our one of our dollar spending patrons can take one jab at take us. A pot shot. All right, Haley, you, the first pot shot you see, throw it out there. Then I'm going to wrap this up. I have uh, one more question actually for Tim. It just oh, came. Right. It just mm-hmm. came up. Another one from Sir Newt. Uh, he says, "Hey, Tim." What's your favorite memory of playing Pablo and Pals? <laughs> oh, I mean, a lot of us have many memories of Pablo and Pals. I was that entire session was amazing. I mean, it's got to be for me the fruit stand, uh, and you know these like square fruit salesmen that I was convinced. We was were all convinced. convinced. It was not just you. Yeah. We were all so convinced that that red herring was what, a thing. Yeah, the one of the hardest moments that I have ever laughed in role-playing history is when you said to the guy in your voice, you're not coming to work this fruit stand tomorrow. We're going to be working. <laughs> We're going to be working the fruit stand. 
Dikke deo. Real Maybe mob boss so moment. Hard. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I'm about to wrap this up. Is there a final jab? Or are we going? Uh, there is no jabs that I can see. <laughs> All right, you escape, unscape, well, right, partially escape. We, we so. both, we both <laughs> escape, Griffin, because they could take him at you. They could, they could. You're absolutely right. <laughs> All right, well, if that's the case, think about him for next month. And in the meantime, Tim, you survived your will save. You did a great job jamming us for over five years now. It's been so touching, so much fun. Once again, thank you very much for all that you do for us and, and these games that you put together. Thank you guys for being amazing players. Uh, we, we love so you lucky. too. Yeah. So we're going to wrap this one up. And for those of you who are listening and watching along live, we are going to be transitioning over to the Drunk and Disorderly channel for a little bit of an after party before we call it a night. But until then, Griffin, is there anything you want to say to the folks at home? Finish your drinks. We'll see you in two weeks. Later. Later.